This episode of Crosscut Talks is supported by Alaska Airlines. Hey, welcome to Crosscut Talks. I'm Mark Baumgarten, the managing editor at Crosscut. And this week we're talking about food. And in particular, what happened to fine dining during the height of the pandemic. And for this conversation, we're bringing in another podcast. As regular listeners to this podcast know, a lot of the conversations we've been featuring over the last six months have been from the Crosscut Festival, which was held this past May. For the festival, we partner with a bunch of podcasts, most of which are pretty serious affairs. But we do recognize that life is more than our biggest problems. That's why we brought in Rachel Bell, the host of Your Last Meal, to lead this conversation about food. And yeah, this talk is in large part about the problems presented by the pandemic and one restaurant's creative solutions to those problems. But it's also just delightful. And I figured, with all the seriousness we serve up, you really do deserve a little delight. This conversation is sponsored by Northwest Harvest, which would like to share the following message. Northwest Harvest is working to achieve food security for all Washingtonians by breaking down barriers that prevent people from accessing good food and addressing the root causes of poverty and hunger. You can join the fight for food justice by supporting Northwest Harvest at www.northwestharvest.org. It's also worth noting that this is the last conversation from the festival that we'll be sharing here. The team at Crosscut is busy lining up the slate of guests for the next Crosscut Festival, which will be taking place next spring. Watch this space for more on that in the near future. In the meantime, I hope you enjoyed the conversation. If you have any feedback, please send it to talks at crosscut.com. Okay, on with the show. It's me. It's Rachel Bell. And this is the very first live edition of Your Last Meal, which I always imagined there would be thunderous applause. But since this is virtual, I'm going to announce this and then we're going to just have awkward silence like this for just a minute. Um, thanks so much to Crosscut Festival for having us. And when I say us, I guess I mean me, but it makes me sound more important to say us. Um, let me just explain the show a little bit because I know there are people who've never heard it or people who don't live in the area. So on each episode of Your Last Meal, I interview a celebrity about their last meal. So past guests include John Waters and Greta Gerwig, Maya Bialik, Ben and Jerry, Neil deGrasse Tyson. Um, and then I dig into the science, the culture, and the history of that dish that they choose with experts from around the world. So today's guests are the third generation owners of Canlis, a James Beard Award winning fine dining institution in Seattle that opened in 1950. Uh, it was more recently than 1950 described by the New York Times as Seattle's fanciest, finest restaurant. Um, introducing brothers Mark and Brian Canlis. And then later in the show, like I mentioned, we will dig into one of their meals. Um, so I will welcome Seattle cookbook author, and if I may call her this, Dumpling Queen, Xiao Ching Chow to the show. So she's gonna be with us later. And I just wanna remind everybody who's watching that we're gonna do a Q&A at the end. So at any time when you have a burning question, just write it in the chat. Somebody's keeping track of that uh, and we will get to you at the very end. So hi, Mark, hi, Brian. Thanks for being with us. 
Rachel. Hi, Rachel. Thank you. We're glad to be well, here. We gave thunderous applause. We just want you to. I don't think we yeah, were. We on, were like but cheering. We were like, it is so weird to you know do a performance and then just have complete silence. It's like very nerve wracking. Um, so I just want to give a little bit more background for people. Um, for what you've been doing for the past 16 months since the pandemic started. So the dining room at Canlis has been closed for 16 months, but you've gotten attention around the country and around the world actually for finding really, really inventive ways to get your food to people. Um, and so a couple months ago, I got an email from a listener who said, can you stop using the word pivot? I'm so tired of people using the word pivot to describe things changing during the pandemic. So. I'm going to say some of the things you've done over the past 16 months. I looked this up in the thesaurus to rotate, turn, revolve, spin, swivel, twirl, whirl, wheel, and twirl. oscillate. Twirl. twirl and whirl. There's I, been a lot of <laughs> There's There's a lot of that. Thank you for not using the P word. Yeah. yeah we're not saying it. Well, actually, yeah. I'll let you do it. So tell me some of the things you've done. There's like a long list of, of different things you've done with your restaurant that's made it really accessible to people who, you know, maybe didn't yeah. own a tie and never went to Canlis before. If we could do them in order. Do you want to hear them in order? Yeah. Here. Yeah. Okay. okay. So burger, uh, uh, drive-in burger. Well, I don't even know what you call that thing. The drive-thru. Uh, burger drive-thru. Burger drive-thru. Followed by an outdoor bagel shed bagel restaurant. Followed by a delivery, home delivery. Home delivery service. Followed by, we did a piano live stream show for yeah. home to be able to watch piano, our piano players live. We hosted a bingo show, uh, um, which was kind of fun. And right. Then, we did, um, we did, then we did bottle service and like alcohol and wine pairing service delivered to your home. We did CSA kits for farmers and that kind of thing. Uh, we opened a general store for like selling merch to raise money for nonprofits. <laughs> and we did a movie theater, a drive-in movie theater in the parking lot. And then we did a crab shack, which was an entire restaurant we built just for COVID. It was this outdoor restaurant where you just ate tons of crab. We opened something called Canless Community College. Um, a little mysterious and bad. That's a long, Justin, that's hard to that explain that, like, yeah, that whole That was worked. Yeah, <laughs> it actually was our probably our most successful thing we did. And then we I, did yurts. We did a yurt village which was this outdoor restaurant made of yurts. Yurt Village One. Uh, and then we did Camp Canlis, which yeah. was a, uh, we did have a treehouse restaurant, we have a canteen barbecue restaurant, and then we have two. a second Yurt Village. Tomorrow we do kind of our last thing, which is care packages. Mondays. Yeah. We launch care packages where you can send care packages all Oh, yeah. So it's 18. Yeah. I think there are 18 ideas in there if we, if we, unless we forgot a couple, but it's been, it's been whirly. It's been twirly. And whirly. Of- <laughs> it's been oscillating. It's been spinny. Yeah. So, so I mentioned earlier that you are the third generation to be running this restaurant. Your grandfather started it and then your parents took over and then you took over. So I've always been intrigued by any family business in general, because I always wonder did you want to do it or did you have to do it? Did you feel pressure to do it? So um, I guess you can answer that question, but also where were you in your lives? What were you doing when your parents decided to retire? And was it a choice to take over? It was, it was absolutely a choice. Well, they wanted me to do it. I think yeah. that's fair to say. No <laughs> well, one really thought, I mean, it's hard to I, like, no. And then Mark couldn't do it. And then he asked me to come help him. <laughs> Actually, there's sort of some truth in that. Uh, no, we, no, we didn't think we were going to do this. Our parents really held it with an open hand. They were like, hey, it's um, if you ever want this business, you're going to have to earn it. You're going to have to earn your way in, but it's not going to be handed to you. And also, if you don't want it, that's fine. We'll sell it and make some money and retire. So we had the freedom to choose or not choose. Both of us were in the Air Force. I really think they kind of pushed us out of it. But I think that 
looking back, you know, now that we're parents, you sort of see what mom and dad were doing, and you're like, it was, it was a total Jedi mind trick. It was the Jedi. <laughs> Yeah. We might have been Jedi mind tricked yeah. into coming back to the because we we left. We were far. We, you were in Florida, and I was living in Alaska. We were both in the military. I go in different directions from restaurants, but it, here yeah. we are. Yeah, we ended up doing it. I actually, I actually came back first, and it was a really hard go. Like it was really hard to take over from mom, and dad, and uh, just what was going on. And at some point, dad made a recommendation. like, you should go get your brother. That, go would, get you. that would like fix the whole thing. <laughs> Basically. And it kind of did. I wouldn't tell a story that way. It might, yeah. it might end up. No, but generational transfer, there's a reason a lot of businesses don't make it. It's hard. And yeah, and they don't have you. It takes a lot of work. Not, not everyone has a little brother. Not they're, everyone has They're me. like flying and save the day. <laughs> <laughs> so, you guys have so much energy and it makes sense that you came up with all of these these creative ideas that you've done over the past 16 months, which is super unique. So I want you to tell a story, a story I've heard before, but I love, and I want you to share it with people um, to kind of show that your family has this kind of creative energy. Tomorrow's Mother's Day. Uh, your yes. mom is a little prankster. Talk about the greatest prank that Mama Canlis ever pulled on her what children. It, seriously, can we, can we go there? Are you ready emotionally? Yeah, no, I'm ready this with your yeah i just think like what i mean there were some long nights when our dad had to work at the restaurant she was home alone with us and i think she just had to get real creative to entertain herself so we're teenagers right like young teenagers oh i feel like i was like 11 which makes you 13 or 14 but emotionally like 18 because i was like a little bit ahead so anyway so brian's yeah so we're i don't know and the story begins when we're around the family table all eating lasagna. No, no, it was like a chicken, yeah, uh, like a, chicken a Mexican casserole or some kind of like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and mom, you know, she just starts giggling, just sort of like restrained, hushed, sort like of subtle. Oh, oh, pardon me, I've just, I'm still dealing with something funny from earlier in the day. Kind yeah. of, but she can't get it out of her mind. And she and, keeps giggling, and the giggling just starts to sort of like bubble forth as a major thing that the table's thinking to talk about. And we're like, "Why is mom laughing? Like, mom, what's like, going mom, on? Like, come on, what's the joke?" No, no. It's nothing. I just, I can't, you know, but anyway, that kind of thing, right? This is my mom. She's like 30 minutes into pulling this off when finally we get it out of her. Yeah. She's like, well, do any of you have to go to the bathroom? Really? She gets it out of us. Yeah. <laughs> because I, I found this X lax in, in the cupboard and I've always wondered if it worked. And so I just put it in the casserole. Yeah. I poisoned the <laughs> casserole with a diuretic. She's like, I've, and I just, what? it cracked me up. Cause it, apparently x is, is fake. It, it must be like fake news or something because we didn't have that word back then, but, but it's not working. Right. Okay. So naturally, you know what happens one by one, we, we all yeah. excuse ourselves. We all like run to the bathroom and have to go and to the bathroom. actually uh, go to the bathroom. Uncontrollably. Like, really, yeah, it wasn't like we just sat there and wondered. It was like, no, we need to go. Yeah, I think Matt went first. We have an older brother. He, yeah. he booked it. So, you know, so this only increases the giggling a little bit, right? Like, you kind of see where this is going because yeah. um, by the time we've all sort of returned to the table and yeah, she's, she's, actually, this is like funny to her. After we've been poisoned. And we're like, what's so funny? And she's like, wow, I was, I was joking about the X legs. I just, I made that up. <laughs> <laughs> like who does it? We're young children. Like, wow. Also, like, <laughs> yeah. No, I definitely went. No, I definitely went. And I don't think I was dinner time goer. No, just like, I'm more of a morning those, guy. You get to those rhythms. And like, oh, dinner time is not my time. But no. it was. It was back then. Yeah. yeah. No, I'm still in therapy. Uh, with we talk about it. Yeah, we all talk about we'll it. Talk about my mom. <laughs> Actually, that's true. 
You don't talk about X Labs, though. No, we do. Talk about my mom, though. Have you ever used X Labs? No, I haven't. But my mom was the Metamucil lady, if I may, you know, tell her secrets the day before Mother's Day. Powerful effect. Okay. Yeah. So to all the mothers, maybe tomorrow we should actually do like a. We should poison her. We should. Don't poison her. It's fine. Sorry, we should flip a diuretic into her casserole. <laughs> That's how we. That was the Canlis family dinner table growing up. Diuretic in the casserole sounds like a punk band you would have been in in high school. Um, it does. Yes. Yeah. And we worked yeah. as an internet handle. We've never done it at the restaurant, by the way. That Trish. Yeah, let's get Everybody stand down. It's never been done at the restaurant. Never so, been done. so your grandparents owned this, your parents owned it, you own this. So you grew up, you know, in this fine dining atmosphere at work, but you didn't eat that way at home. You told me that, you know, you ate pizza and macaroni and cheese and cereal, kind of like a classic American 1980s Absolutely. white person childhood food. Um, mm -hmm. And so that brings me to this question. Um, Brian, you have a secret guilty pleasure that nobody except your wife knows about, but you've decided to tell the world. So what is the food that you still feel so, a little embarrassed about? My mom used to always shop at Costco and one of the things that she would get at Costco were these like five pound bags of shredded cheddar cheese. You know, like the two kinds of cheese, not like the white and the, like the... Um, yeah. And it was in the freezer and I love cheese. And so what I would do is I would sneak into the freezer and I would scoop it. You have to scrape it with like a fork, fork to get the, and then you'd fill a like um, a little ramekin, or like a or a little uh, like kid cup, a plastic three inch cup, packed with cheese. Put it in the microwave for about thirty two seconds, and you comes out. And then you just eat pure melted cheese with the with the fork. And what's funny that you're asking this is this morning. <laughs> this morning, my kids are watching The Sound of Music, and my wife was asleep because she didn't sleep all last night because she's seven months pregnant with her fourth kid. And I totally did it. I went something uh, <laughs> from his past. No, this but we like have like fresh cheese. Practice. And I, this morning I ate a cup of melted cheese. You did. You just, <laughs> just pork. No, it's cheese. like, it's a perfect food. It's perfectly seasoned. The texture is, people have nachos, they put it on pizza. But what if you just take it? The do, nacho do you and the feel pizza like those away. people are not are, are just hiding behind the fact they want they're just like, they're, the it's an excuse to get the melted cheese into your body would you invite just them eat just the melted cheese you would. straight up there you go but the um, only, no, weird, the only weird married, part about it i was gonna say i was married about two years my wife caught me doing it like in the kitchen eating melted cheese with a with a fork and she was absolutely horrified at how disgusting that was there are worse things to get caught <gasps> I think bowl. the only weird part is that you use a fork. Why would you not use a spoon? Doesn't it just drip well, through the tines? With the spoon, it, it'll stick and you have to like, no, the, do that lip thing to get it off the spoon. Yeah, the, the fork really is better. You'll, you, you'll see. I've right. used both. I've right. tried it. <laughs> you'll but see. A fork, a fork is a more enjoyable experience. <laughs> All right. So you guys just hired a new executive chef, and this was big news. It was in the New York Times. The Gray Lady even covered it. And um, it made news because you're one of the country's finest restaurants, but also because it was the first female executive chef you've hired. And I was really impressed by this. Only the seventh executive chef that the restaurant has had in 70 years. So people really, really stick around. Um, but I was reading an article about it in Seattle Metropolitan Magazine, and you have a very 
very unique interviewing process that reminded me of these things you hear about in tech companies that I've never experienced before. So can you talk about some of the more unique things that you have your candidates do when they've applied for a job at Canlis? We did branch out into a new interviewing process. COVID's been an unusual time, but you know, we couldn't kind of do what we wanted to do. We wanted to, we like to get to know the person, like the whole person and try to understand um, what's really going on there. And typically that's a lot of time spent together, which is hard to do in the pandemic. So yeah, typically we'd say like, come have dinner with me and my kids or uh, let's, let's, let's play games. Let's play a game of charades or laser tag. We, or let's you, like bring you in for a poker night. Or yeah, we, we, we think being a chef is like cooking and making great food is low on the, it's like low on the list of what makes you a great chef. You have to be able to cook great food. I wouldn't say it's low on the list. I would say it's, it's uh, the first step like it's an assumption. Of course, you're an amazing cook. Yeah, it's of course like you if, can do great things with food. Yeah, if you're going to be a football player, of course you can throw the ball. Right. Yeah. Or that you know the rules to football. Like that. That test is sort of the first barrier to entry. But um, yeah, so we did this thing. We just said, hey, could you write a little article? Like, say you're Seattle Matt, or say you're Seattle Times. Like, you could just give us the headline, the byline, and a couple of paragraphs about what the story is about you coming to the restaurant. And then we said, could you just make a video, like sixty seconds? of you wholeheartedly doing something, like pouring yourself into a task that you're clearly not very good at, like that you just, you're terrible at. I just want to see you like yeah, go and, for it. Because we believe great leaders, which is what kitchens need in this country, uh, not great egos, like are, are comfortable being seen. They're comfortable showing others when they're not good at something. Mm -hmm. They're comfortable uh, being vulnerable. And so we had a lot of chefs send their videos of them doing things that they were good at because they couldn't stand uh, to be seen as not being great. So many people failed at this. It's 60 seconds. It's like, come on. Like, we all have something that we, we just suck at. And then they couldn't do it. And it just yeah. tells you a lot about a person. I, mm. I think the ability to let yourself be known or let yourself be seen is something that we lack in leadership across the board, yeah. not just in kitchens. And so, and so Aisha, who we hired as our chef, She's like, she's, she's very serious and um, she's super professional and she's so dialed in and so talented. And we, we, we knew this from like talking to her and her resume is like insane. And she sends this video. We get her, we're like really nervous to get her video because we really liked her. Yeah, but, we, were, we were already kind of sold. But. And she starts like really serious looking at the camera and she's like, okay, you know, I think I'm just going to do this. And she turns on some music. And she starts to dance. It's like a TikTok video or something. Like uh, yeah, and she's so bad at. <laughs> this is, and, this but, is not but, her forte. But she dances hard and with her whole heart. She's like, "I'm, I'm gonna learn this dance, like the kids do. I'm gonna yeah. do it for." It was you. like the Dougie or you something. Know, and we're like cringing, you know, like nobody yeah. wants to. And she's cringing, but she doesn't give uh, up. Yeah. And she keeps going, and <laughs> she amazing. was like, "I'm not gonna stop for sixty seconds." Uh, <laughs> And we were like, that's like, there's, like, there's a leader we want to follow. Yeah, like, like fully. I was like, um, I wish I could do that video. I would yeah. be scared to turn the camera on and start dancing. And so. even right now, we're actually on the hunt for our new wine director. Our wine director is leaving after 19 or 20 years. He's an amazing guy. And we've done the same thing. We're, um, we're, so we're currently still, just yesterday, we got we're two more videos. Watching some fun videos. Of people setting their video in, of doing something they're bad at. It's, it's an awesome, I think for a leadership position, it's an awesome thing to have people do yeah. and get into it. Yeah. I think that's a great way to go about it because this reminds me, I applied for a job years ago, actually to be a 
food tour guide and I didn't get the job. And I asked her afterwards, would you mind telling me why I didn't get the job? And during the interview, she asked that question that people always ask, which is, um, you know, what are your strengths and what are your weaknesses? And of course, I have that canned weakness, the one that's not really a weakness. It's like, well, I just work too hard and I just burn myself out like the fake, <laughs> you know, the fake reason. And so she said, well, what's another weakness? And I couldn't think of one because I didn't want to tell her, yeah. well, I just kind of like go on Facebook for hours and don't get any of my work done. Um, yeah. <laughs> so I said, I'll get back to you. Let me think about it. And she never came back around. So after I didn't get the job, I asked her why I didn't get it. And she said, the fact that you couldn't reveal your weaknesses made it seem like you yeah. have an ego. And I was like, what? But every nobody answers that question sincerely. So I feel like you asking that question in the form of letting someone be silly and make a video allows somebody to actually, you don't have to tell people your real weaknesses. You can just show what you're bad at. That has nothing no, to do with your job. Just the willingness to be seen for your own humanity. And it, like, it yeah. takes too, right? Like, like the company has to, has to care enough to do that. And then you have to be willing to be, be seen in that way. And it's only then that you're actually establishing a real relationship. If, if all we care about is her strengths, we, we care about, you know, one slice of her. And yeah. the idea is that you're actually caring for your people. So they're, they're actual selves, they're actual authentic selves. And if you're not entering into that kind of relationship at work, like what a, what a sad and tragic sort of state that is, right? Mm -hmm. Hopefully we get to be our, our complete selves, even while we're working, not in spite of work. So anyway, we, that's all what yeah. we're trying to get to in the, in the interview process is who, who will you, who will you become while you're working here because you're working here. And so. Right. Yeah. Okay. One more quick question before we get to your last meals. I was looking at the original 1950 menu from the year that Canlis opened. And by the way, lobster on the appetizer menu for $1.50, which was amazing. And a baked potato oh. for 50 cents. There wasn't much difference in the price between a potato and lobster. Um, but the one thing that's on that menu is the Canlis salad that you're famous for and is still on the menu today. Um, Three-part question. Number one, is that the only thing that's around still that's from the original menu. Number two, I guess it's a two-part question. Tell everybody what the canless salad is. Uh, it is the only original menu item that's still here. Uh, we, we give our executive chef freedom to create Complete autonomy. Uh, the entire menu except for that one dish, which is a special dish. I mean, my- Basically because we're all addicted to it. Like you can say it out loud. Well, it's, it's just, okay to, like, it's so delicious. My, my own mother craved, Clinical. my mom craved that salad when she was pregnant. Which means mm -hmm. I'm genetically made up of that salad. You are. All she ate. Yeah. Um, but it's it's you're basically the human embodiment. And I am the human canvas salad. Romaine, romaine, bacon, bacon mint, mint, oregano, lemon, olive oil, and lemon. Yeah. You know, salt and pepper. It's just uh, a tough salad. Green like, onion. Ostensibly, it has no place on a fine dining menu. But we think a little differently about fine dining in the sense that it's really just the like the most considered way to serve you. And there's so many people in this town to, for whom that recipe just connects with. Like they, mm -hmm. they remember it growing up as a kid or they've been eating it their entire lives. And so maybe the world's greatest dish is the world's greatest dish, but maybe that salad actually connects with you or serves you even in a better way. And so we just, we keep it on there. We keep it on there because it's a part of who we are and where mm -hmm. we come from. And it's one of those pieces of our past that we it's one of those shoulders that we get to stand on and i think it's a way that we can keep serving so that's the camel salad it it it's not going I mean, it's anywhere. changed a little now we make our own bacon or now mm -hmm. we use 
like finer ingredients, but for the most part, it's, it's, the, the, same. it's the exact same. Yeah. I love it. Okay, we better get moving along. You guys are so fun to chat with. We're running out of time. Okay, big question. What would your last meal be? Mark, you go first. Okay. Um, well, I was I was debating. I was either like SpaghettiOs out of the can, which Ooh, is cold. I used to love to do all the time. And then I thought, no, I'm going to step it up. Here's my favorite thing. It would just be caprese. Hmm. Like, like tomato, mozzarella, basil, sherry vinegar, not balsamic. That's I could eat. I think I could eat that forever. Mm. I would a platter of it the size of this table and I would just that's a lot. I would just do it. That'd be my thing. What would you do? What's your what's your last meal? That hold on. Just caprese? That's it, not it, a meal that's it, a it dish. Is, it is a meal in and of itself. It is complete. It is whole it is like wholly, any like more specifics? Like you have a certain like a certain tomato or a certain mozzarella. We into it. No, yeah, but it'd be very just, I'm very picky is about it. It's like an olive garden situation. It. No, it is not olive garden. It's my <laughs> <laughs> I make, can I just say this? My wife's Italian, a part-time. I think I make a very good caprese. It is my most celebrated and special thing I eat all year long. You've never, never made me caprese in your life. Yeah, we're not there yet. You're, you're, you're saying you're the best caprese maker in the world. You've never shared <laughs> talent? Say I'm the best caprese maker in the world. I don't think I've ever had caprese. I like <laughs> more than But you've traveled around the world. You've been to Italy. Like I've eaten it everywhere around the world. And yours is best. It's very good caprese, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. It might be. I think it was the best. I just said it's the one I want. It's to the meal. Is there wine? I don't want to eat your are you gonna have, like, for my last Are you going to have any wine? Yeah, I would have wine. What would, what would wine. you have? What's your pairing? Um, my pairing. Let's see. What would I have? I would. It would be white. And it would be um, a sort of, um, you know what it would be? It would be like a really sweet Chablis. Like just something wow. like. Wow. You don't mean sweet, you mean dry. I, I mean, by, by sweet, I actually mean um, like awesome or sick or rad or cool oh. going there. I don't mean yeah. residual sugar in the wine. It's a dry wine. It's Chablis is the greatest wine in the world. Yeah, I would do it like an amazing, amazing show. Okay. My last meal would be Melted cheese. eating dumplings in Taipei at the original Din Tai Fung. Hmm. I... So I was I was on I was in Shanghai with a good friend of mine who's also a restaurateur named Will Gadera, who was a close friend from college, um, and we decided to go to Shanghai together. And we were it was one of those days when we were like so tired and so hungry, and it's a hard city to be in as an American if you don't speak the language. It's not an easy place to be a tourist. And we found this restaurant that had this um and often when, when when you're in shanghai everyone's trying to sell you something and it's hard to know what to trust sometimes if is that watch you're selling real or not real right so um and there's this bronze plaque outside this restaurant in a strip mall and the blonde bronze plaque says this the new york times in in the mid 90s called this restaurant the top 10 restaurant in the world wow like there's no way this is real we'd never heard of it but we were so hungry, we went in, and it was like the fourth branch of Din Tai Fung. Um, and we had this meal with just beer and and Xiaolong Bao, which is their soup dumplings. And we we must have eaten sixty or seventy easily Ugh, between the us. Almost became and, your last and just meal. beer, and then we had sake and dumplings, and we kept repeating and repeating. And we couldn't believe um, that the place was empty and not more popular. And we like hopped on our phones after, and sure enough. Uh, the Taipei restaurant was named 
one of the 10 best restaurants in the world. And we couldn't believe that we had like discovered this thing. And we went back the next day because we had to go back. And there was a line like a thousand people long. And we didn't realize that it was like a, like a Chinese holiday eating. Uh, And they're like, oh, this place actually is famous. We stop. We talk about that meal of dumplings, sake, and beer. Um, we, you are a dumpling fan. I. It's. I. It's the perfect. You keep going there in your head. No, it's the only thing that's better than yeah. pure melted cheese. <laughs> um, they should put that on the sign next to the New York Times <laughs> with, with the fresh right. ginger, and then you dip it in black vinegar, which is a touch of soy. Yeah. Um, and you drink the soup. The Din Tai Fung here in Seattle, it's great, and I'm a frequent guest, but it's. It's not, it's not as good as it is over in Asia. And I just dreamed that the Taipei restaurant, the original, which goes back to the 70s, has to be like the greatest single restaurant in the world. Hmm. That's where I want to go. And then I'll die on the sidewalk right outside after, and I'll be so happy. You're not just going to like face plant into a bunch. No. <laughs> and I think that's, a little dumpling. that's disrespectful to, to the dumpling. restaurant. I, I need like to that. leave, get yeah. to the sidewalk, and, and then, then just- die. We'll be back with more after this. Dreaming of a long-awaited vacation? Take your travels to the next level with Alaska Airlines. They're committed to providing a higher standard of safety and cleanliness throughout your journey. From mask requirements and touch-free options to HEPA filters on board and fresh air every two to three minutes. Plus, their award-winning loyalty program, Mileage Plan, makes it easy to earn and redeem miles wherever you go including destinations worldwide, thanks to their One World Alliance membership. If you're ready to land a low fare, next-level care, and the best experience in the air, book now at alaskaair.com. Okay, guys, I could talk about this with you all day, but we are running out of time, so we have to bring on our second guest. So everybody, if you're listening, if you have questions for Mark and Brian, type them in the comments. We're going to do Q&A after this. But now we're going to switch gears because, like I mentioned at the beginning, once I learn the last meals of my guests, um, we like to talk about the history, the science, the culture. So we are going to focus in on those soup dumplings, the Shao Long Bao from Din Tai Fung um, with Shao Ching Chow. There was a lot of three words in a row right there. <laughs> um, and Shao Ching is the Seattle author of Chinese Soul Food and her new book, Vegetarian Chinese Soul Food. Uh, beautiful books. I keep mine on my coffee table when you know, I want to just look at something pretty just to, to leaf through. So welcome. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. And the whole time I'm listening to Brian describe Wax Poetic about soup dumplings, I'm like, yes, 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 yes. <laughs> I've been to all those locations. Um, and yes, it's a, a fantastic uh, parcel of deliciousness. And I know you want to get geeky about soup dumplings, and I'm ready to do that. So do you okay, want to ask a question or should I just launch into it? I'll ask you a question first, just because for anyone listening who's never had Xiaolong Bao, I just want to be clear that the soup is in the dumpling. It's not a bowl of soup with dumplings in it. It is trapped inside of the dumpling wrapper. And so I want you to explain the magic. How do they get the soup in the dumpling? Well, first it's Xiaolong Bao. Xiao is little, Long is the basket, Bao is the ball. Um, and so that how the soup gets into the dumpling is that you get um, basically meat gelatin, right? Mm-hmm. Meat jello um, that you make with uh, bones and pork skin and all sorts of deliciousness to get the natural collagen. Cook that down, that becomes, chill it, becomes gelatin, 
you chop that up to go into the filling. And then when it steams, all of that melts and the soup mm-hmm. is inside. And it is probably one of the most delightful things to eat, but also one of the most dangerous because you have this boiling hot soup inside that's straight out of the steamer and you have to eat them hot. Yeah. So you develop a uh, uh, Teflon tongue and and just you know eat very carefully, uh, but yeah, it's really that's how you do it. And there are mm-hmm. soup dumplings where you have soup in a separate bowl, so mm-hmm. there there is that version as well. But mostly it's soup inside the dumpling. Can you give us so, an insider tip on how to know when it's the right temperature? Do you have like a do you have a method for that or? Because it's dangerous, right? I mean, you could go. It is dangerous. You just, you know, as soon as it comes to the table, you you start eating it, and it's the it's almost like you're aerating a sip of wine. You aerate the 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 you suck the soup out of the dumpling and kind of aerate it as you go, and that helps to cool it down a little bit, hmm. so you're not scalding your tongue. But you can't like once it cools, the the wrapper just kind of. Um, shrinks in on itself and it, it's just not the same textural experience so you got to eat it while they're hot yes. but you learn how to eat them hot well I'm wondering if the way I was taught was the wrong way kind of like I was remembering the other day that when I first started eating sushi in my early 20s we would put the pickled ginger on the roll and eat it that way and now you know I haven't done that for a long time so I'm wondering if this is a similar faux pas I was learned I was taught to eat the soup dumplings by like taking the teeniest little bite to let the steam out and then to eat it do you not do well, that? You ha- well you have your Chinese spoon and yeah. your chopstick in the other hand so you kind of you you scoop using your chopsticks you help to lift the dumpling into your uh, soup spoon so it's okay to reach into the basket that way and then, yeah, some people some people take the small bite, let the steam escape, and then drink the soup, and then eat the dumpling. Um, some people take a bigger bite, so it just depends on what your capabilities are. Certainly, you know, with my kids, they have to be extra careful because they <laughs> aren't quite uh, well. They're better now, but when they were younger, you know, it's a lot more dangerous. But yeah, there's you know, and then and then whether you want to dip it in sauce or chili sauce and and all of that. So you have you have some uh, differences of preference. So can we talk a little just briefly about the history? Um, when did these come about? Where are they from? Was this, I mean, it's such an elaborate time consuming dish to make. I was wondering if this was for royalty. Uh, well, legend has it that it was created in Nanshan County in uh, Shanghai and you know in the 19th century but you know as with any of these types of history uh that's sort of debated who actually invented it but shanghai is the the origin of these dumplings and there's lots of traditional places in shanghai if you ever go there again brian um there 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 are other restaurants and in fact if you want to look up the uh, shanghai soup dumpling index this guy named christopher uh, actually tried 52 different Shanghai um, uh, Shaolongbao restaurants and then measured four different qualities mm. and put it in a poster. So it's, you know, ratio, weight of the filling ratio, all that stuff. And that's in a chart. Um, uh, yeah. So it, 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 you know, originates from Shanghai. And the thing with Dean Taifang is it's, it was founded in Taipei, um, but they happened to have a chef who knew how to make uh, Shaolongbao and, and he introduced that to yeah. Taipei. Like that's that's kind of the the history of it. Um, and speaking of Ding Taifeng, they are. If you ever stand outside the window, 
um, and you see them like d making their dumplings, they the wrappers weigh five grams, the filling weighs 16 grams. So for a total of 21 grams, and there are exactly 18 pleats. Mm -hmm. And so the chefs there train and train and train to get it exactly right every single time. Now, when I teach soup dumpling making for home cooks, I'm like, okay, we're home cooks. We're not going to be that precise. Just, you know, make the dumpling <laughs> seam it and you, you're good to go. But yeah. if you, if you do want to get really geeky about it, you can, uh, you can kind of prescribe exactly how many pleats you want to do it. And the thinner the wrapper um, the, the better it tastes, but it's really hard to get the wrapper just right. Yeah. Um, so at home, it's a little bit, I'm a bit more forgiving with folks. I don't know where I heard this, if I read it or heard it on a podcast, because when I went back to find it today, I couldn't. I heard a rumor that they won't hire dumpling makers who are left-handed because you have to all be in a line and it would disrupt the flow. You have to be a right-handed dumpling maker. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if that were the case, but, um, but if you're left-handed, you can train to be a right-handed pleader. Like, I don't, I don't see that as an issue, right? Like you can be ambidextrous. Um, and if you make dumplings and I have made many, um, just like pot sticker, boiled dumplings, that kind of thing, many, many tens of thousands across, uh, my decades of being on this earth. Um, and you have to be ambidextrous if you're pleating on both the right and the left side. So mm -hmm. I can pleat with my left hand. I can, I am right-handed, so I naturally can pleat with my right hand, but I, I can also pleat with my left hand. So if you're really good at making dumplings, you can, you can do it all. Okay, we have to go to Q&A in one minute, but I really, really want to ask you this question because I'm just intrigued because both of you, all of my guests um, grew up in restaurant families. Um, can you talk about where you learned to make dumplings, not soup dumplings, different kinds of dumplings, and um, you know how many you had to make over the years? <laughs> so when I, yeah, so typical immigrant story, came to the States, my parents were professionals in Taipei, but couldn't do what they did. So somehow they ended up in the restaurant business. And I spent, um, if I wasn't physically in school, I was in the restaurant. And when I was eight years old, I started making want all the wontons for our restaurant. So I did wontons. Um, dumplings, I made, we didn't sell dumplings like uh, pot stickers um, because it was very labor intensive and people want cheap food. They want Chinese food to be cheap. So um, so we would make that at home and many, many years of, again, I, I, I've tried to venture account, but it's hard. Um, a lot. And in the last five, six years, I've been teaching pot sticker classes. And I have to say, I am the best at teaching pot stickers. <laughs> I have taught many of them. I have had hundreds of students. Um, now with Zoom, you know, I just did a class the other day through 90 Second Y. So with a lot more people from across the country. But yeah, teaching. Um, so by, by not only growing up making dumplings, but also teaching how to make dumplings um, is a, just adds another level and layer of understanding of the mechanics around dumplings. So ask me anything. AMA. <laughs> 
AMA. AMA Q&A. That brings us perfectly into our Q&A now. So um, one question um, you can all answer, but I'll start with um, Brian and Mark. People want to know, what are your thoughts on 11 Madison Park going vegan? Um, for those who don't know, that's a very fine dining restaurant fine dining restaurant in New York City that's been called by some the best restaurant in the world. And the chef announced very recently that when they reopen, all of the food is going to be vegan. So you can't crutch on butter or cream any longer. I think it's I think it's bold and I think it's exciting. They, uh, our entire industry needs to move that direction. It's the, it's the way it's the way we're all going. But we don't have to go that far. But I love that they're taking that step. And and not every restaurant could. It's really hard to do. Uh, so nice to be rated one of the top restaurants in the world and have sort of the the ability to do it. But I love that leadership and I um, and I love that we're moving that direction. It's just you're going to see it all over the world yeah, and we the, need to go there. But like that's what fine dining should be doing is, mm -hmm. bring, you know, like a like a really fancy luxury car comes out with a feature. And then 10 years later, all the cheaper cars have that same feature as standard. Yeah, a little. That's what the great chefs of the world are doing. I think that's what Daniel's doing. Like. He's going to pave a way to ha to teach and help other restaurants be able to get off their uh, their meat kicks and be more open because when the great restaurants do it, it helps all the others be able to follow. And with your new chef, I know that you know she'll have a lot of autonomy to do what she wants to do. But um, do you anticipate adding a little bit more of a vegetarian flair or meatless Monday or something like that? It won't be meatless Monday. We've kind of been moving that direction for five or six years now, and uh, I'll tell you, it's not easy to do. You know, people come in and they have a, a certain mindset about what is special or what a big night out is going to look like yeah, or what expensive food looks like right so you know wow i'm paying this much money for celery it just doesn't feel as cool as your dollar 50 lobster in 1950 so um but we're but we've been moving that direction you know pretty steadily for a number of years yeah. now and, and that's one of the exciting things i think about aisha is just her ability to to make a mushroom or a piece of celery tastes as good as yeah. a piece of no, fish. No, we, we, we really hope that the world continues to move towards protein being the complement to the veg as the star. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's where we need to go for our bodies and for our environment. Well, Xiao Ching, I mean, you just did a whole new vegetarian version of your first book, so I'm sure you can relate. I, You hear a lot about, you know, in other cultures where the meat is used sparingly and it is usually a lot of vegetables, but in this country it is like slap a big steak, you know, on the table and have a little side salad. So was, was the cookbook, did it come from people asking for those versions of the recipes or just something that you wanted to do? Actually, these are not necessarily vegetarian versions of meat-filled dishes. These uh -huh. are just vegetable-centric dishes and vegetable-centric cooking. Um, and, and what I have to say is that, um, you know, a lot of these cuisines, global cuisines, already have a huge tradition of plant-based cooking. And so, you know, it may be that a, a fine dining restaurant leads the leads the way in the developed world, but really, this type of food, this type of cooking, this type of eating has been around for centuries, right? Mm -hmm. Because meat is expensive, 
Yeah. Um, the reason there, you know, a lot of stir fry dishes are mostly vegetables is because meat is expensive, fuel is expensive. So yeah, it's more vegetable centric. So, you know, I think, I think, you know, to the, to Mark and Brian's point about having um, a place like EMP sort of show the way to those types of restaurants, I think there's absolutely uh, great value in that. Um, but I just want to speak up for, for, you know, cuisine in, in the sense that a lot of us have been eating this way for a long time. And there are a lot of chefs out there who are already doing this work. Um, so, you know, we have different perspectives. Uh, let's see. What are all of your favorite local Seattle dishes? Just to put you on the spot. Um, we can go down the line. Whoever can think of their oh, first thing that uh, comes in your mind. Uh, rice cakes with spicy sausage at Jewel. Ooh, that's like a good one. Jam. It's my favorite one. thing in the world. Yes, yeah, she's got teriyaki. And these aren't the kind of rice cakes that my grandma would keep in her purse smeared with peanut butter. These are the ones that are closer to chewy noodles with rice flour. Yeah. Yasuko teriyaki, chicken teriyaki. Ooh, that's very Seattle classic dish. Yeah. And donuts on the Mokotio Speedway. Ooh, I always drive by that and I wonder. That's good. Drive by without getting some. You will, you will thank yourself. They're so good. Okay. It's a pleasure. We do it all the time. Let's see what else. Okay, um, dishes you don't like or foods you don't like. Um, I think you know a lot of people in the food world were not very picky, but is there something that you don't want to eat? I don't know why uni is consumed. I think it's, <laughs> oh, it's so good. We have to eat it now. That's taking over the world. <laughs> the reproductive organs of this, like they know what it is. Yeah, is you just don't like it. It's just the worst. That's my. <laughs> Place for sure. I hate it so much. It's like <laughs> cheese like of it. the sea. It is. It is really not his jam. Oh, no, yeah. I don't know. You're not a big fan of abalone either. That dancing one in China was kind of freaking me oh, out. Oh man, we had abalone. <laughs> I didn't nearly. I, you actually I, turned. I, I nearly threw up at the table. You, you, it was, oh. it was really <laughs> the color just just bleed from his face. It was terrifying to, to kind of see. But um, the foods that I we don't like. I, you like everything. Yeah, I, I don't know. Uh, no. <laughs> nope. Don't have anything, anything, anything. Don't like. I mean, does that does that does that connect to you at all? What do you not like, Shaching? I don't like raw onions. Oh. <laughs> I'll eat them cooked, but does something? It's just Wait, so sharp. Even in moderation. I don't like raw onions. I, I, they, you can't digest them very well, especially like big, gigantic onion rings, like on a burger or something. Or um, well, no, go big, gigantic. What about like salsa has is a great application of the raw onion. Like like you just a little onion and salsa just helps, you know. Uh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but when I do that, I I mince the onion so fine that yeah. it's not this giant yeah. chunky piece of thing like i like the flavor of that in that application but you yeah, mean like an onion apple eater you don't just sort of like oh yeah <laughs> <laughs> apparently i don't know it's an eastern washington thing to have a peanut butter onion peanut butter raw onion sandwich i just learned about this a couple years ago yeah. that'd be hard i think that'd be hard yeah. yeah no i tried the peanut butter pickle this year that was actually really good have you tried I it did. Good. Yeah, I haven't had one yet. Have you had one? I've not. I'll be honest, it's not been a great year for us for getting out. We've been a little, <laughs> a little behind. 
it's weird. Yeah, up, you know, and you get all all busybody. But yeah, I'm looking forward to that again. I'm looking forward to branching out and exploring this town in the way that you know we all used to. No, but you can get that uh, uh that rice cake dish to go any night, man. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Nice. Okay, guys, we're out of town. We're out of town. We're out of time. (laughs) Uh, We're not out of town. Thank you so much, everyone, for being here today. That was Mark and Brian Canlis's last meal. Uh, Go to canlis.com to see what they're up to because they're always up to something fun. Um, They had mentioned earlier that starting tomorrow, you can order uh, these care packages for the people you love in your life. So canlis.com. And thanks to Xiao Ching Chow. Make sure and pick up one or both of her cookbooks, Chinese Soul Food and Vegetarian Chinese Soul Food. And self-promotion, if you've never listened to your last meal before and you liked it, which you might if you're still here, um, make sure and subscribe so you never miss an episode. And you can follow along on Instagram at Hello Rachel Bell, E-E-L-L-E. And that's it for this week's episode. Thanks to Rachel, Xiao Ching, Mark, and Brian for the talk. And thanks also to the folks in the audience who asked questions. If you'd like to be one of those audience members for a future CrossCut event, go to crosscut.com events. This episode of CrossCut Talks was engineered by Seth Halloran. The live recording was engineered by Rusty Bacall and Victoria Ralph, and the event was produced by Jake Newman and Andrea O'Meara. Ann Krasnovich and Mo Cloud managed our audience engagement. If you'd like to subscribe to CrossCut Talks, you can do just that on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. For the latest political, environmental, and culture news from the Pacific Northwest, visit CrossCut.com. And if you would like to support the work that we do at CrossCut, whether it's the live events we host every month or the in-depth reporting we deliver every day, go to CrossCut.com slash donate. CrossCut Talks is a product of Cascade Public Media. I'm Mark Bumgarten. We'll be back soon with another conversation.